This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Uh, yeah, so my name is Randy Ban, and I am uh, the father of Oliver Keen Ban. Uh, and I'm the administrator at Arise. Who here knows what Arise is? Yeah, well, a lot. Okay, we have former students scattered around here. They're the loud ones. Um, so yeah, where I'm, uh, they asked me to do a presentation on music and worship. Um, still trying to figure out why that was, but anyways, I spent some time praying about it, researching it. So I'm just going to be sharing things that I've learned, practical things, uh, things from the Bible, things from the spirit of prophecy, and we'll hopefully all learn something today and be able to use practical. Uh, hints and guidelines and tips to take back to our church. Is anyone here uh, currently a worship leader in their church? A few? Anyone? Anyone here has a church that needs a worship leader that you should probably maybe help out with? No? Some musicians, but maybe not a worship leader. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll talk about all of that. So why don't we start with prayer? Well, we have a few more people coming in. I did not think that this place would fill up, but it... It is getting full. Okay, well, let's, let's pray, and then we will begin. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful Sabbath day. Thank you that it's a gift to us, and that we can rest in you. Lord, I pray that your spirit will be here um, now during this breakout session. Uh, speak through me, Lord. I'm nothing, but you are everything, Lord, and I just pray that you hide me behind your cross, and that we can learn something today. We can learn something from the Bible from the spirit of prophecy and just practical guidelines that we can um, take into heart and to mind for ourselves and then also be able to take what we've learned back to our local church, Lord, to, to really be able to enhance um, the worship service to be uh, a sweet aroma to you and an acceptable offering um, in your name. Amen. Okay. Okay, so worship. Uh, I wanted to first talk about what worship is and set that foundation and then we'll get into the role of music because there's no point just going into music and not understanding first what worship is because we find, we'll find out in this presentation that music is, is worship. Which, so it's kind of a weird thing to say, you know, music in worship uh, when music is worship itself, yeah? Can everyone hear me okay? I don't have the loudest voice, so, okay. So I had to come up with a title, maybe I didn't, but I called it Why We Sing, Um, yeah, Music and Worship. So we're going to talk about these three things. First, like I said, what is worship? Uh, Then we're going to talk about music and worship, and then uh, the importance and the role of a music, a worship leader. And I don't think many of our churches um, have, like, just a dedicated worship leader, but we'll talk about that, because I really feel that there is a need for that. I think it's biblical. I think it's practical and very important because uh, we should take worship seriously. Uh, and just a disclaimer, when I say we as a church, um, I'm basically meaning your run-of-the-mill church in the NAD, in the North American Division. I, I, I've only lived in North America, so I only can speak on uh, my experience in that. And I know we may have some people here from outside of North America, but again, we're going to be 
anything I reference to as far as the church, that's what I kind of mean. I know there's almost 20 million Adventists in the world, so I'm not speaking on, uh, you know, I don't know what it's like in a church in Africa because I've never been. Uh, but I have been to ch- many churches in North America, and so I'm going to talk about that uh, demographic. So does that make sense? Okay. So worship. What is worship? Typically when I would think of worship, and maybe some of you would think about worship, you would think to yourself things like, oh, I'm going to go have worship, or I had my morning worship this morning. Yeah, those typical things you think about, kind of the wordings that you would use. And I would think about, oh, okay, I had worship in my living room you know, earlier uh, this morning, or I'm going to go to a worship service at the church tonight. It's, it always seems to be like an event that you go to. Like, I'm not having worship now. Now I'm going to go to a place where I can have worship. But I started to really look into this. You know, they asked me to do this presentation. Um, I actually did uh, a variation of this last year. Uh, So I was just reading, um, praying, and I realized going through the Bible that worship actually is more, way more commonly used as a verb than it is as a noun. Uh, The... The word for worship in the Old Testament um, is shaka, is the very commonly used like 99 times, and 31 of those times it's the word is bow, um, like 18 times it's bow down. There's also a word for fall down. Uh, it's a lot of action, a lot of movement, um, words of reverence. Uh, again, just prostrating oneself, just bending over. That's a very very common use for it. There's some verses I cited here, there's many, but Second Chronicles 20, verse 18, Nehemiah 8, verse 6. Uh, for the sake of time, we won't read all these verses, but uh, again, they're all action words. They're all, like I said, bow down, fall on your face, lift your hands. Hopefully that freak anyone out, but um, that's actually in the Bible, um, as a response to, to worship. So they're all action words. But remember, I was always thinking that worship was an event, something I'm going to be uh, attending you know, attending a worship service. So again, looking in the, in the Old Testament, I saw that, whoa, over and over again, it's, it's uh, a verb, it's an action. Well, let's look at just one of them. Who, you guys have your Bibles with you? Let's, let's look at one here. Let's go to the one in Second uh, Chronicles 20, verse 18. Second Chronicles 20 and verse 18. I'm not going to ask for an amen because we need to get clipping along here. So, and Jehoshaphat bowed his head and his face to the ground, and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. So you see there, bowed, that's one, face to the ground, two, inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed, that's three, and they worshiped the Lord. That was what it was defined as. You can see that there? So some, and they, these other three are, are the same. They have falling down, and I think the one in Psalms is raised, lifting his hands in, in, in awe of God and worshiping God. So again, it's a, it's a verb, it's an action. In uh, the New Testament, uh, again, the, the word there that's used is proskunio, and again, I didn't take Greek, so sorry if I just slaughtered that. Um, but that's where the word worship is translated into uh, 40, over 40 times that's used. And again, it's used for bow down, prostrate, um, bow onto one's knee, and also uh, kiss the ground. Another word that is translated to is, 
where is it here? Letreo, Letreo, um, which means to serve. Uh, that's what it is in Romans 1, 9, basically to serve with, with one's life. So again, a lot of verbs, a lot of action here. Something else that I realized when I was reading through the Bible and seeing that there was so many action here, words for, for worship and for verbs, something that I realized is that a lot of these actions were actually a response to something and that something was God. People would, uh, in the Psalms, they would realize the truth about God, about the beauty of God, the greatness of God, and then as a result of that, as a response to that, they would lift their hands or they would shout praises to his name. They would fall to the ground. Um, Even in the presence of Jesus himself, uh, whether it be a healing um, or a miracle, people would fall to the ground um, immediately in, in awe of, the, of Jesus. Because again, it was, it was a response. It was a spiritual response to this truth about God, this revelation of God. So as I started to, to read through this more and more, I started to, to understand that it's, what I used to think about worship was kind of incorrect, or not maybe not incorrect, but not really what the majority of the Bible was defining as worship. John 4, if you guys want to turn there, here's another verse we'll look at. John 4, verse 20 to 24. This is the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It's kind of the, I don't know, Magna Carta of, of what true worship is in the Bible. So you want to turn to John chapter 4. And we'll start actually in verse um, 19. So already this is in the midst of their dialogue. Uh, they're kind of bantering back and forth. And the woman, said, uh, the woman says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So you can see here the Samaritan woman is associating worship with what? A place, a location, yeah? Kind of like how I used to think. And then in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know that we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus here is trying to, to get a point across to the Samaritan woman. She's basically uh, assuming or asserting that worship has... She's asking, is, is worship going to be you know, in Jerusalem, as you guys say, or is it going to be on this mountain here in Samaria where my fathers you know, w- worship God? And Jesus says, no, it's not, going to be a, it's not about that. True worship um, is going to be worship that is based on spirit and truth. A couple of things you can get from this here, well, there's more than a couple, but some of the things we'll point out is, number one, the fact that Jesus says that there will come an hour when true worship will be like this, it must be that Jesus is saying that there is some sort of false worship going on. My, from my understanding here uh, is that the Jews themselves, thinking that the temple was the true place to worship, thought that as long as they were in the temple, 
that they, whatever they were doing there was true worship, but we know that's not the case, yeah? How many of us have been in church on Sabbath morning and we weren't there to worship at all, yeah? So this was a problem back then, too, for the Jews, and Jesus was pointing this out and saying to the woman, basically, get, change your, uh, get a paradigm shift here. It's not about where you're at. It's more about the action. It's more about the relationship you have with God because if you have a relationship with God, with Christ, there's going to be that truth there, obviously. You're, you're going to be reading His Word. You're going to be getting revelations from the Spirit of, of truth about Him. And then that will result in a spiritual response, the Spirit. And one of the responses that we'll see is, is, is singing, like we've seen uh, earlier in these uh, Old Testament and New Testament uh, examples. There was an action that was a response to biblical truth. This was a huge paradigm shift for me. Just trying to disassociate what I thought worship was with a location, with a place, with a time, with an event. I'm going to go have worship. Which even that's weird in of itself if you think about it. I mean, if, if true worship is, is in spirit and truth, well then the truth needs to be initiated by God. So really, we're not the ones who decide when worship is or isn't, yeah? Who decides that? God does. God reveals himself all the time. So if he's revealing himself to us, we should then be responding. So if he's revealing himself continually through his spirit, through nature, through the preaching of his word, through singing of songs, then we should be responding continually. So in a sense, we should be continuous worshipers. Yeah? It's not like a switch. I'm worshiping now, I'm worship- now I'm not worshiping. Which this mindset is actually, you know, I, working at Arise, we're training people to be soul winners um, and teaching people about evangelism and how to share Christ with others. And one thing that we try to get across to the students is that your life should be witnessing, yeah? It shouldn't just be, okay, I'm like not in soul winning mode now and then I'm just going to turn it on when I happen to go, you know, to the grocery store. It if we just have this mindset that we should be continuous worshipers, then we wouldn't have to turn it on or off when we show up to, to, to church in the morning and then after Pollock when we go home, yeah? It should be something that's continuous. Um, and there's a couple of verses I want to share here that actually kind of bolster this point. Uh, turn to Hebrews 13, verse 15. Again, we're looking at a lot of uh, Bible verses here just to set this foundation and then we'll get into the practical stuff based on this. I just didn't want to hop in to all the practical stuff without getting into the Bible, because then I didn't want to be that one workshop guy who said, I went to his workshop, and he only opened the Bible like once. So if I hear you guys say, oh, that guy was in the Bible all the time, I'll take that, no problem. Okay. So Hebrews 13, verse 15. Where are we here? Okay. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Continually, you see, you see it here. A continual sacrifice. I mean, we know that um, before Christ came as the ultimate sacrifice, they were giving sacrifices daily in the temple, yeah? Well, after Christ came and fulfilled that, and all those um, ordinances and everything was fulfilled in him, that didn't mean that we had to stop sacrificing every single day, well, we had to stop sacrificing bulls and goats, 
But God was now calling us to be living sacrifices for him continually every day. The worship of God doesn't stop um, just because they stopped sacrificing bulls and goats every day. Through Christ, we can now sacrifice each day through our lives. And uh, we can see this in Romans 12. Turn with me, going left here. Romans 12, verse 1. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And by the way, this word, reasonable service here, is actually translated uh, that letrinio, which means worship. So it's the same thing. Again, it's an action. It's a, it's a lifestyle. Um, we need to be continuous worshipers. And this has been something big for me, just trying to understand that, uh, because there's a lot that can change in your life if you understand that worship is something that's 24 hours a day. It would just draw you closer to Christ and understand that the Spirit actually does live in you and he, God is actually revealing himself to you continually, therefore you should be responding continuously. And the way this is going to impact what we're going to be talking about in worship is that when you, if you have this mindset, if you understand this from the Bible, when you go to a worship service or on Sabbath morning, they always have that call to worship, yeah? You know, that's like... The strange thing is, is that a call to worship every Sabbath almost assumes that I was not worshiping before I got there. Because, um, I mean, you called me last Sabbath, too. So I, I, that shouldn't expire, yeah? Your life should be continually expressing um, just awe and gratitude to what Christ has been doing in your life constantly. Uh, and then in 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5, it says that we're living stones built up to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Um, so again, worship is a verb. It's something that happens all the time. So are we, are we getting that point? Continual worship, yeah? Is that making sense? Because that's really going to set the stage for everything we're going to be talking about. Something that hit me that kind of helped me understand this thing of continual worship, I'll try to to use this illustration the best I can. So about, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, I was on the internet, just bored, um, and I decided to look up what the top all-time videos on YouTube were. Um, And don't act like you guys haven't been bored and gone into YouTube and just, next thing you know, it's been like an hour and a half, it's like midnight and you've been on YouTube. Anyways, don't do that. Um, But anyways, I got a good spiritual illustration out of this. So I go on there, and the top, it's actually the top 11 uh, YouTube videos of all time, three of them were music videos by this guy here. Um, I didn't know if I really want to put a picture of him up, because I didn't want to like, stir everyone up, but okay, who knows who this guy is? I'm not asking if you're a fan of his, don't, I mean, I'm just saying, do you know who this guy is? Okay, is, his name is Justin Bieber. Here's my point. It's just, I, don't, I don't lose anyone. I didn't, I didn't even know if I wanted to put a picture of him up. But anyways, here's the thing. Three of his music videos are in the top 11 all-time viewed YouTube videos. Okay, I added up the amount of views for all three. I want, see, I want you guys to even just guess how many that came up to. Five million? Five hundred? A hundred million? Two billion. Well, that's a lot. Okay, yeah, I heard a whole bunch. Here's it. Here, I added up. It was over 1.2 billion views. 
Okay, and do you want to hear something astounding? The three songs came off of, I guess, of his first album. I looked up the release date of that album. It was January 2010. In less than two years, there have been 1.2 billion views of those three music videos. And he had like two or three other ones in like the top 25. Okay, so I started thinking here, and again, the Spirit of God was leading me because I was like, God, I mean, what am I doing? It's midnight, I'm looking at Justin Bieber. Um, so here's, here's what happened. Okay, <laughs> here's something I realized. Okay, to get one, so I started doing the math. First I added that up, which by the way, the first one, the number one, was like 675 million views. The, sec- the second thing on the list was another music video, and it was only like 300 or something. So he by far exceeded that. Um, and by the way, this is something interesting. I think all of the top ten except for two were actually music videos, which is interesting. Um, one of them was that Charlie Bit Me with that baby. <laughs> I could see someone watching that like 250 million times. Um, so anyways, here's the point. In less than two years, 1.2 billion views. So I did the math, and actually it might be still be on my calculator. I, I did the math and tried to figure out like, what that would be um, per day. Uh, over like 370, I mean uh, 720 odd days, it was 1.7 million views a day. And we made a joke last night. That's not just like one 13-year-old girl like doing it like <laughs> a million times a day, or, or three of them. Like that's a lot of fans spending a lot of time watching Justin Bieber videos. So then I started thinking, okay, you know. At GYC, at our churches and, and everything, we have workshops on, right here, well, how to worship God, um, how to witness for Jesus, yeah? Here's what I realized. These fans of Justin Bieber, these people here with Bieber fever, they don't have to take a workshop on how to worship Justin Bieber. They don't need a class on how to witness for Justin Bieber. They just do it. And as much as we would say that these people are... It's an I have a son right now. If he listens to... <laughs> um, here's the thing. We can knock them for... We think that, hey, they're worshipping something that they shouldn't. But the truth is, at least they're consistent. They understand that if they're worshipping Justin Bieber, Justin Bieber will constantly be part of their lives. Yeah? But yet, we need to be reminded on how it is to worship. We need to be told from the Bible that and be reminded to look to the Bible that we need to be continual worshipers of God. Because the truth is, there's, everyone in the world is a continuous worshiper, a worshiper of something, whether it be Justin Bieber, or your job, or money, or whatever it is, we all worship something. We happen to worship God, Jesus Christ. But yet, some of these 13-year-old girls who love Justin Bieber kind of put us to shame as far as their understanding of worship. And in a sense, we could kind of learn something from them. I mean, that sounds funny, but it's kind of true, yeah? The whole call to worship thing, I just want to read this quote to you. It's from Harold Best, a book called Music Through the Eyes of Faith. There can only be one call to worship, and this comes at conversion. When in complete repentance we admit to worship falsely, trapped by the inversion and enslaved to false gods before whom we have been dying sacrifices, this call to true worship comes but but once, not every Sunday, we would say on Sabbath. 
in spite of the repeated calls to worship that begin most liturgies and orders of worship. These should not be labeled calls to worship, but calls to continuation of worship. From my knowledge, there's no Justin Bieber church that meets every week. And the truth is they probably wouldn't need one because they're worshiping him every day. Now, of course, we're commanded to, to meet together, um, fellowship together uh, on church on Sabbath. But how many of us, if it wasn't for church on Sabbath, would we even remember to worship God? So again, it was just something to think about that we can actually learn something from the world in that sense. That again, at least they understand fundamentally that when you worship something, it's a continual response to that. For them, it's the truth about Justin Bieber brings out a response through whatever, screaming and falling down at his feet or whatever, but um, we need to understand that when God is continually moving in our lives, there should be a continual spiritual response. And we've seen in the Old Testament and the New Testament, those responses of worship um, are most of the time actions. And for us, it should be falling down at the feet of Christ. It should be raising our hands to God for what he's done for us, um, both privately in our own worships and corporately. So as we said, music and worship, we're kind of head towards this now. Um, Singing is one of the responses, as we've seen. But yet, in our churches, why does it seem that music is kind of like the preamble before the sermon? Yeah? And why is it that participation is like, needs to be coerced at times? Uh, Again, to go on with the whole Justin Bieber thing, my guess is that if there was a Justin Bieber church, their song service wouldn't have people just sitting there not singing along to his songs. Yeah? Yet, why is it for, for us, with our God, I mean, God, this is not some idol, some 17-year-old kid from rural Ontario. Um, this is, we're talking about the God, the creator of the universe. Yet, you know, for us, we feel that singing is, like, optional. There are some Old Testament verses that, um, that talk about this very thing and these responses. Go to Psalm 119. Psalm chapter 119. And we'll go to verse uh, 171. Psalm 119. Verse 171. Okay, it says in verse 171, My lips shall utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Skip down to verse 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise you, and let your judgments help me. You notice how there's two elements here. There's praising, and then there's teaching. For you teach me your statutes, for all your commandments are righteousness. Let your judgments help me. Again, there's that biblical truth, 
about God that we can see through his judgment, through his righteousness, through his teachings, through his commandments. And then there is the spiritual response. There's singing. There's praise. Uh, uttering from the lips just how amazing he is. You see that? So that's in the Old Testament. Go with me to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to kind of get a uh, kind of a walk through quickly of Revelation chapter 4 and 5 to see what worship in heaven looks like. That would probably be a good place to start to see what a good example would be, yeah? Okay, so we won't read this, but I'll just uh, kind of break this down as quickly as I, as I can. But there are a bunch of things we can get from this. So chap- Revelation chapter 4, you guys with me? So in, starting in uh, verse 1, it says, And these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Okay, so you see what's happening here. An angel speaking to John, and he's saying, Hey, there's a door open. Come, just look inside, and we'll take a peek into heaven, and we'll see what's going on here. So, uh, verse, again, I'm going to speed through here now. So, in verse 4, around, there's a, th- verse 3 and 4, there's a throne, uh, which is, is, has all these beautiful gems and, and uh, stones. God is sitting there. And around the throne, there are 24 other thrones, which has 24 elders sitting on it. They're clothed in white robes. They have gold crowns. There's lightning and thunder in verse 5. Uh, the seven spirits of God are there uh, in verse 6. Uh, there are four living creatures with eyes that are full of eyes in the front and back. And then in verse 7, uh, it gives a description of those four living creatures. In verse 8, uh, it says that the four living creatures, that they say they don't rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then whenever those living creatures give glory to and honor to God and thanks to Him who sits on the throne forever and ever, then the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. Which I thought was kind of interesting. It says that the four living creatures, they don't rest their night singing those praises, holy, holy, holy. And then whenever they do that, the uh, 24 elders fall down whenever they do that. Well, if they don't ever rest to do that, then that means that they're all continually doing it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's going on. And then they cast the four, 24 elders cast their... Uh, crowns to the throne, and they sing, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So a lot of stuff going on here, yeah? Seems pretty dynamic. There's uh, God the Father sitting on a throne, there's 24 elders, there's seven spirits, there's uh, four living creatures, there's praise and, and adoration going on day and night with no rest. And then in chapter 5, uh, we see here, starting in chapter, there's a scroll on the, uh, on the throne, and now God the Father is going to be passing this to uh, the Lamb, the Lion of, of Judah, the Root of David. Jesus now, God the Son, has, uh, has now shown up on the scene, and he's loosed those seven seals. And then in verse 8, it says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down, before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, 
out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all of them were in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Wow. So that's a peek into what worship looks like in heaven. Very dynamic. Yeah, there's lots of people singing. It says actually every creature is singing. Um, and there's lightning and thunder. There are instruments being played. Uh, there are harps, cymbals. There were singing by the elders, singing by angels, tens of thousands. Super dynamic. Lots of things going on. Lots of praise going on by every single creature. That's what it should look like in our churches. Is that what it looks like in our churches? We have every single creature singing and praising. Uh, Here's kind of a long quote, but I'll read it to you from, from Ellen White. She says, Music forms a part of God's worship in the courts above, and we should endeavor in our songs of praise to approach as nearly as possible to the harmony of the heavenly choirs. The proper training of the voice is an important feature in education and should not be neglected. And this is, I bolded this. Singing as a part of religious service is as much an act of worship as is prayer. The heart must feel the spirit of the song to give it right expression. That's from Patriarchs and Prophets uh, 594. And then she says, Singing is just as much the worship of God in a religious meeting as speaking. And that's from the third book of Selected Messages uh, 333. Okay, it seems pretty important, yeah? As important as prayer as important as speaking. Yet again, we kind of see it as optional at times, or more so than at times. But again, I've been to many churches where we would think that it would be inappropriate for someone to choose whether or not they wanted to listen to the sermon. Yeah? Like, it's sermon time now. I'm either going to sleep or talk or leave or read my bulletin or read a book. We would think that's kind of inappropriate, yeah? Because it is inappropriate. But why is it when we have song service that leads up to that sermon, if people are doing those same things, chatting, uh, making their way in, uh, reading their bulletin, and all that stuff, we're like somehow not upset about that. Like To me, that's a full-on abomination. And, and I'm saying this for someone who's done that um, for many years. So the question is, like, why? Why is that? Why do we think that the preaching of the word is just so much is, is rever- deserves our attention and reverence, which it does? Yet when it comes to the singing beforehand, it's kind of it's almost like a cue. And, and again, I, I'm guilty of this too. And maybe even as recent as this weekend for some of us, when it's like when we hear the music start playing, it's okay. I have time to maybe just go to the bathroom real quick. I'm going to do a last text message. Um, I just want to talk to my friend this, over here one last time, and I can make it back, announcements, sermon, I'm good, yeah? Like, it shouldn't be that way. If music is as much part of the service 
as prayer is, and if we wouldn't do that stuff during prayer, like why do we do that during the singing? I'm not saying I even have the answer to that. I'm just saying that we need to really recognize that and try to change that. And again, trying to make this as practical as possible, um, if you're starting to understand this biblically speaking and support from the Spirit of Prophecy, when you go back to your church, try to, to encourage your, your fellow members there to try and, and train and educate your church and then um, essentially, ultimately, the entire church that singing is important. Singing is commanded by God. Another illustration that I thought of is just how ridiculous it is. Again, we don't see it as being ridiculous, but, but it really, really is. Okay, so we need to understand that worship is not a spectator sport. Yeah, we would say that. So if I have a good friend here, Tyler Coleman, who plays, used to play hockey um, at, a, at a pretty high level. Um, if he was to show up with all of his gear, with his stick, skates, and, sit, I mean, and stand there um, on the ice, ready to play, and then the puck drops, and everyone else is playing, and he just stands there, uh, like, looking at his glove, or he whips out his cell phone during the play, we would think that that's pretty, like, I mean, come on, you guys would, like, laugh at that, you would just think something's, something's wrong with him. Because he's dressed for the game, he's holding all the right tools for the game, he's around other people that are playing the game, yet he's not doing anything. Ridiculous, Yeah? But in our churches, even for myself, I'm dressed for church. I'm holding all the right tools for church. I'm around other people that are singing at church, yet I'm okay with just not participating. And that's not ridiculous. Inconsistency. Yeah, again, uh, these are just thoughts that the Lord is giving me, and I'm just wanting to share that with you. I'm not a preacher. I'm not condemning anyone. I'm just including myself in this. And I want... Myself and any of you here that, that need to change, we need to change. We need to understand that Christ is actually coming back and we can't just turn on the worship switch when he gets here. Yeah? So why do we need to sing? We need to sing because, well, God basically commands it. <laughs> In Psalm 22, verse 3, it says that the praises to God inhabit, well, God, um, that the, the children of Israel are just constantly praising God so that he's basically inhabited, he lives within their praises. I mean, that takes a lot of praise, that takes a lot of singing, that takes a lot of effort and spiritual response for God to be inhabited by those praises. We said that spirit and truth are what true worship is. And for, for many of our, our, well, I'll speak to, say, here at GYC, um, a lot of truth is being revealed about God here. Praise the Lord for that. But are we, are we seeing enough spiritual response to that truth? Do some of your churches take a lot of effort, a lot of time, um, into making sure that the Word of God is preached, yet the spiritual response, which would be through music and singing, they don't take too much time in that. There might be an imbalance there, yeah? And I'm not, I'm not a promoter of the other way. I've been to churches where there's a lot of singing, a lot of praise, but very little preaching of the Word of God. Well, where did you get that, 
reason to respond if you didn't even hear the truth about God yet. I mean, for that day, of course, there are continual worshipers, so there's, there's enough there, but in, within the worship service, there should be that balance. They go hand in hand. The preaching of the word is the truth about God, and then the singing of his praises is that spiritual response. Does that make sense? Are we seeing that in all, all of our churches? I guess I just feel, and I've been a part of this too, I, I feel that there's a complete biblical unbalance when a church, you know, would really love to have a great worship service, great singing, great music, but as long as the preaching is good, we'll be okay with maybe not the best worship service. I mean, you should be striving for excellence in both, yeah? And it's not for one side of, of spectrum of Adventism knocking another side. Like, I think there are two, both ditches. One way to safeguard yourself from not striving away from the Word and only praising all the time isn't to just go on the other side and not sing to the Lord and only preach the Word of God. You should be going down the biblical path, which is a balance of both, because they go hand in hand. It, as we say, God calls us to sing. Um, God sings over us himself, it says in Zephaniah 3.17. It's, it's pretty clear that we can say that the Bible is full of reasons why we need to praise the Lord. Here's a long quote, but I really want to read it to you guys. It says, The evil of formal worship cannot be too strongly depicted, but no words can properly set forth the deep blessedness of genuine worship. When human beings sing with the Spirit and the understanding, heavenly musicians take up the strain and join in the song of thanksgiving. He who has bestowed upon us all the gifts that enable us to be workers together with God expects his servants to cultivate their voices so that they can speak and sing in a way that all can understand. It is not loud singing that is needed, but clear intonation, correct pronunciation, and distinct utterance. Let all take time to cultivate the voice so that God's praise can be sung in clear, soft tones, not with harshness and shrillness that offend the ear. The ability to sing is the gift of God, let it be used to his glory. And then she says, The singing should not be done by a few only. All present should be encouraged to join in the song service. And she's just basically saying what was happening in Revelation 5 there. All the creatures that were present there as the redeemed of the Lord were singing praises because that should just be natural. If it's natural for Justin Bieber fans to do that, it should be natural for us to do that. So the role of music in worship. We see now that worship includes music. Why we need to sing? Because God commands us to. It should be the natural outpouring, the natural spiritual response. So what is the role of music in worship? First off, praise. That's kind of an easy one, yeah? Think about Jesus and the resurrection. I mean, how could you not want to sing praises to that? I mean, our Savior is alive. We think about the the redeemed people, us, the fact that Christ died on the cross and we have now the free gift of salvation. I mean, that's awesome, yeah? You know, there's always that kind of caricature on on TV. Someone decides to give their life to the Lord and the the big, the the choir, you know, the choir ladies, they just start singing, hallelujah, yeah? Well, they kind of make a joke of that, but the thing is, that should be natural for us. 
And, you know, the Bible says that we were saved, are saved, and will be saved, are being saved, and will be saved. I mean, so that, the redemption is something that's constant. So we should be constantly being like those choirs and singing. Prayer. Music can be a prayer. And not can be, it is. We typically think, okay, prayer, someone's going to have prayer, we close our eyes, one person is then praying to God, and we're listening, and then when the prayer is over, then we open our eyes, and then we continue on with the worship service or continue reading the bulletin, if that's what we're doing. Um, which, by the way, a side note, I know I'm not doing the worship service thing. Uh, I think Roy Gain is talking about that. Last year they had me do that uh, as well as this. I'm glad they broke it up to two because there's just a lot of stuff. But bulletins in church, they have to go, I think. I think you just need to have the, the service order, even if you, if you even need that. And any other announcements, put a bulletin board in, in, the, in the foyer. Have the people that need to make those announcements just wait there after. And if anyone needs to hear that or wants more information, they can go there. We're, the service is for worship, yeah? Anyways, um, yeah. I mean, I, it's just so, so strange to me that we would tell people to come into worship, call, have a call to worship, or biblically speaking, it should be a continuation to worship, and then we give them a whole bunch of stuff to read. And then you have to make announcements about the things that you put in the bulletin. Anyways, I think that you just give them one order of service as they walk in, and as they walk out, then give them stuff that they can read. I don't need a copy of, of you know, the bake sale that's going on on Sunday when I'm coming into worship. I, I mean, I can read the stuff on the way home. You know, I, I just have a little boy right now, and, and you know, he's, not, he's only four months old. He's not old enough to, you know, to read or anything, but I, my guess is if I want him to pay attention to me, I'm not going to hand him like a toy to play with and then tell, I expect him to listen to me. Um, or if I did, that would almost be like torture, yeah? They just don't give him the toy. Just, I want to speak to you. God wants to speak to us in a worship service. Let's do all that we can to not give distractions to the saints that are there to worship, yeah? Okay, anyways, back to this. Sorry, I just had to... I'm sure that they're talking about that in another one as well, so I'll stick to what they asked me to do. Um, a prayer. Prayer can be defined as communication to God, yeah? Speaking to God, giving thanks to Him, asking Him requests, um, just praising His name through direct communication to Him. Yes, that can be done privately from one person to God, even in a public setting. But music, songs, singing, that are designed to communicate directly to God, for instance, um, say the hymn, My Jesus, I love thee, or Be thou my vision, just as examples, those are designed as prayers. Okay, I've never thought about that before. Because, like I said, I wouldn't, I've just brought up this way, and, and I think it's, it's a correct way. When someone's praying, you close your eyes, you bow your head, you fold your hands, you're not like chatting and whatever, you're, you're reverent and paying attention. If we understood that songs that are meant as prayers are that same thing, would that maybe change the way that we act during those songs of prayer? So that's something that you need to be aware of. When, when a song is coming up, and uh, say you're familiar with the song, say it's, for instance, next Sabbath when you go back to your church, they're going to sing, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Well, just remember, that's a prayer. And then we should act accordingly. We should be having prayerful thoughts. You're speaking to God. And what's cool about that if you have that understanding, is that we all have, or we should have, our own personal prayer life with God, yeah? 
But what is, one of the awesome things about church is that we get to then pray along with our brothers and sisters corporately. I mean, how cool is that, yeah? It's as cool as we allow it to be, basically. Um, if we understand that and act accordingly, then it can be a huge blessing. So again, I, if, you, if you're going back to your churches, this is something you can educate your members in, something that I'm learning, something that maybe you're learning now, um, that I think can really guide our churches to what true worship is. So a prayer. Um, do I have a quote on this? Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, oh, maybe this is for the next one. Okay, so that's a prayer. We've said, saw beginning already that singing is much of worship as prayer is. The next is actually teaching and instruction. Actually, I'll just go back here. Teaching and instruction. If we look into Deuteronomy, actually, let's go there quickly. Let's, let's open our Bibles again. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Is this resonating with anyone? Yeah, okay. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 19. Okay, so what's happening here is uh, Moses is speaking to the Israelites. They came out of Egypt. And what did I say? Uh, Chapter 31, verse 19. He's now speaking to the Israelites about a song that he's going to share with them in basically the next chapter. He says in verse, chapter 31, verse 19. He says, Now therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this, this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. And then he says in verse, well, jumping down to verse 30, at the end of that chapter, he says, Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. And then he goes on, and, and if you haven't read it, read it. He's basically running through the story of the Exodus and how God led them. And he wanted them to write it down, teach their children, and have them sing it because it was going to be a way to remind them of how awesome God was in the past and what he's going to then do in the future. That's what a lot of these songs that we sing today can do if we allow them to. There's a lot of great songs and music out there that we sing every Sabbath that if we understood them, took the time to reflect upon them, and then taught them to our children, it could be a way of reminding, um, a constant reminder to our children of how God has led us in the past, how he's leading us now, and how he can lead us like, in the future. Yeah? It's for teaching. It's for, for edifying. Um... Okay, I have to read this. Uh, I should just have it here. This is from Evangelism, page 496 and 497, about the Song of Moses. Ellen White says, These words were repeated unto all Israel and formed a song which was often sung, poured forth in exalted strains of melody. This was the wisdom of Moses to present the truth to them in song, that in strains of melody they should become familiar with them and be impressed upon the minds of the whole nation, young and old. It was important for the children to learn the song, for this would speak to them, to warn, to restrain, to reprove, and encourage. And check this out. She said, it was a continual sermon. That song that Moses 
songs and taught them and then had them sing was a continual sermon. I just think that's absolutely amazing. This other quote I have up here, To the humble, believing soul, the house of God on earth is the gate of heaven. The song of praise, the prayer, the words spoken by Christ's representatives are God's appointed agencies to prepare a people for the church above, for that loftier worship into which there can enter nothing that defile it. Educating our children, educating ourselves, the young and old, through song is preparation for heaven. And again, I, this may sound like, sure, yeah, okay, that's great, but next time you sing, I mean, even tonight at GYC, when they have the songs before um, the evening uh, devotional, read the, when you're reading the words up on the screen, just really think about what you're, you're reading. If, if it's a song that you can tell is speaking directly to God, treat that as a prayer because it is. Really try to get in that, let the Spirit move through you, which is the proper response to the biblical truth that we've been hearing this whole weekend, that we've been reading even this morning in our own personal devotions. Just let that be a prayer. Let that educate ourselves and let that be a continual sermon, yeah? Uh, Some other practical things that music can be for. A defense from Satan. Calling upon the name of the Lord. He flees, yeah? So if you have a room full of, what, 5,000 people all singing together in unity the praises of, of God and adoration to Him, that's probably not a place where Satan's going to be around, yeah? But if he sees that people are just not really into it, reading their bulletin, um, texting or whatever, I mean, then Satan probably has a way to get in and mess up the rest of the service, yeah? So it can be a, a defense to, to the enemy's attacks during our worship services, just having the partici- participation of singing. Personal worship time. We've been talking mostly about corporate worship, but as a, a good friend of mine, John Baxter, who um, works for AFM, uh, he, whenever he, he teaches at a rise every year, um, and he always stays in my place, and he stays in the room next to ours, uh, in our guest room, and every morning, I hear John singing whatever the song was for that day, if he chose a hymn or whatever. And I love hearing that because he's praising God and to be able to kind of hear into someone's, I know, uh, worship to the Lord is just awesome. So he's, I, he's told our Rise class, he's told me, he said, pick a song in the morning and sing that song and that song will actually stick in your head through the rest of the day as a continual sermon, maybe, to get you through that day, and maybe it could also be a defense to Satan, or from Satan, yeah? So that's awesome. It's, make it practical. Sing a song in the morning, um, and let that stick in your head, because the truth is, we get a lot of other garbage that gets into our head in the day that can bog us down all the way through that night, and having an awesome song that praises the Lord uh, can really be a defense to that, Yeah? What else have we got here? Cheering the saints. If you're sad and you show up to church uh, because you had a rough week, start singing. That'll cheer you up. Uh, yeah, that, that works. Uh, response to Satan's congregation. Okay, this is a kind of a cool one. So we're knocking Justin Bieber fans, yeah, because they're worshiping this kid who 
I don't even know what kind of talent he really has, but they're worshiping him. They're singing. They're singing. They're praising his name. They're wearing shirts that say Bieber Fever on them. I don't believe that's from the Lord. The singing that God commanded us is from the Lord. So let's show them up, yeah? I mean, why, God's character can be seen to the world through our praise to him. So let that be a response to the devil's counterfeit through all these other idols that people are singing praises to. Celebrate God's presence. Knowing that the Spirit of God is with us is a very, very powerful and humbling thing. To know that the ultimate, eternal God of heaven would abide in us, with us, around us, um, should be very impactful in our lives and our worship services. We should celebrate that. We should praise God for the fact that he wants to spend time with us and does spend time with us, even when we don't want to spend time with him. So let's remember that. God's presence is, is a big reason why we should sing during a worship service at all times. Uh, emotional maturity. Okay, We're going to spend some time on this. Uh, I was doing some reading and I thought that this was a really great point. So we're going to spend a little bit of time here. What's our time at? Wow. Okay. Um, we talked about music having a role of education and uh, educating truth about God, which it does. But that can't be the only purpose of what music does. Because if music's really primary role was just to uh, talk about the truth of God, singing probably wouldn't be the best way or the, the most effective way to reveal the truth about God. Probably just speaking or reciting uh, scripture would probably work better. So another thing that music can do, or singing along with music, can do is actually help us to praise or worship God in how we, in worship God in a, in a more complete way. And a way to, we can see this is in Mark 12, verse 30. If you turn to Mark 12, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. It says, And you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. There's a lot of preaching that goes on even here at GYC, at our churches, a lot of study of the Word of God, and that's awesome. But a lot of time, that's just really cerebral at times, yeah? Again, there's nothing wrong with that. We need to be studying the Word of God but again, as we, need, we know that there needs to be a spiritual response to that, something that is part of being a full, proper, complete worshiper of God is worshiping God also with your soul and with your spirit and with your heart, yeah? I can't explain why, and I don't really know if anyone can, but music can evoke those emotions. The reason why I want to spend a little time with this, I think a lot of people think, okay, emotions, he's thinking about getting totally um, just emotionalism and, and just lifting up your hands and, and just totally not understanding what's going on. Well, well no, that's not the case. We, 
we'll see here as we talk that understanding is key. I don't think that our church is lacking in spending time and making sure that people understand the Word of God through preaching. What I feel, and I, this is just my opinion, it feels that we lack a little bit on the emotional side of our spiritual response to God. And that's something that is biblical. It's something that is necessary in being a complete worship of God through spirit, truth and spirit, yeah? So before anyone freaks out, I just want to, again, these are some quotes that are kind of long, but I, I want to read them to you so people don't think that I'm just starting to head down the, uh, you know, going crazy and not, not knowing what's going on during worship service. But it says, The art of sacred melody was diligently cultivated. No frivolous waltz was heard, no, nor flippant song that should extol man and divert the attention from God, but sacred, solemn psalms of praise to the Creator, exalting His name and recounting His wondrous works. Thus music was made to serve a holy purpose, to lift the thoughts to that which was pure and noble and elevating, and to awaken in the soul devotion and gratitude to God. Is it true that music can awaken in the soul devotion and gratitude to God? Yeah, for sure, yeah? Next she says, I saw the beauty of heaven. I heard the angels sing their rapturous songs, ascribing praise, honor, and glory to Jesus. I could then realize something of the wondrous love of the Son of God. I mean, Ellen White's using these words, rapturous songs, yeah? Ascribing praise. I really, I'll just read this last quote and then I'll, I'll comment on that. It says, I have been shown the order, the perfect order of heaven, and have been enraptured as I listen to the perfect music there. Does Ellen White, when she's saying this, does she mean I've been enraptured and have no idea where I am? I'm just like, how am I putting my hands up in the air? No, she's seeing that she's seeing the perfect order of heaven and what worship looks like there. So my point here on this, on this role of, of music with emotional maturity is that we need to allow God to move through our emotions. And, that, and music is awesome for that because you can have a song that has, and we'll talk about instruments here shortly, but a, a song that has a violin or a cello that just I don't know, who play, someone plays the cello here, where are my Asian folks at? <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I actually don't play um, the, uh, the cello, but um, anyways. Uh, <laughs> there's just something about it, yeah? When you hear the cello being played, your heart just gets pulled. And as long as you're grounded in the biblical truth of God, then you're safe. Here's the thing. A lot of our churches, to avoid what we see as being incorrect as far as total emotionalism and being caught up in who knows what without any understanding, our safeguard to that is be way over here and just sit in the pew and make singing optional. Because all I know is as long as I'm just sitting here and not raising my hands, not closing my eyes, not, shall I say, what the Bible says, dancing, then I'm safe. As if that's proper. As if the, the way to be biblical is to just define yourself by what you're not. Really? The Bible has emotion all throughout it. But it's always grounded in a response to biblical understanding. Which again, I think in a lot of our churches, we're not lacking. Praise God. I think that many of our churches here at GYC, many of your churches, Lord willing, are grounded in biblical truth. But there's just no appropriate spiritual response through emotions to be able to 
worship God with our heart, mind, soul, and all of our strength, yeah? Here's, I, I'm kind of uh, spending time here, but uh, you can see I'm kind of passionate about this. We would say that for some of our evangelical friends, when they're not necessarily preaching the, uh, the truth about, the full truth about God in, in their worship services, they're raising their hands, they're dancing in whatever way, and they're getting caught up in things that are not grounded in, in, uh, in biblical truth, that that could be incorrect. Okay, raising, raising of hands, dancing, clapping, singing, all sorts of ways. Okay, but we also know that in the Bible, it says that of, uh, a proper response is lifting your hands, is bowing down in church, which I know it seems super weird if you were to do that spontaneously in a worship service, but it's biblical. Um, dancing, the truth is, we don't know what the dancing looks like that was said in the Bible. It, I'm sure it wasn't the kind of bumping and grinding that they are doing in some places. I think that's incorrect. But there was dancing. David did dance in a correct way. So we know that there's a correct way and an incorrect way to do those things, yeah? Agreed? Okay. But in our churches, we would say that it's safe for us to just sit here, music's going along, and I'm just going to be reading my bulletin. So this song's going on. It's, uh, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. Hey, man, uh, what'd you bring for potluck? Uh, oh, lasagna? Oh, sweet, man. Yeah, I bought special K roast. Yeah, okay, cool. Like, that's, here's the thing. We're okay with that, but that is never correct in the Bible. So we have one way that's over here that we want to not be, which is raising hands, closing our eyes, prostrating ourselves, because we know that that can be incorrect. Yes, it can be incorrect, but it also can be correct. But on this side here, this is never correct. This is never, I mean, really? I, I was at a church service, and uh, the person leading out, it was like the second song, they asked everyone to stand. So they stood. People were standing, and then it went to the next song, and he was, didn't say, you can now take your seats. They were still singing, and you could see the people were like, you know, it's been like three minutes, and they're like, you know, and, and some people like fully like just sat down, you know, and they're just like, I'm, in their head, they're like, I'm not standing anymore. And I was just, really? So Jesus hangs on a cross for several hours, yet we're asked to stand during a song service for like eight minutes and we can't do it? I said, Lord, have mercy. And I was just fully convicted that I know that I'm not praising God the way that I should because I'm not allowing my emotions to go in a proper biblical way. Because remember, it's just sitting here and doing nothing that's never correct. So, music can aid in a proper biblical spiritual response to the truth about God. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that you should go and start dancing in sort of the bump and grinding way or to get lost in, in not understanding. I'm just saying that what we typically allow and put up with the church that is never correct. And music can help us just grow spiritually and more fully into a way of true worship, which is in spirit and in truth, yeah? Um, I had another point on that. Um, anyways, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15 says that we sing with understanding. So a way to safeguard being caught up in emotionalism is being grounded in the truth. A way to safeguard getting caught up in emotionalism is not to go into the other ditch. Yeah? 
so anyway, that's just, I just really wanted to get that off my chest. So thank you for listening to me on that. Ellen White has a, has a quote here from Testimonies, Volume 1. She says, I saw that all should sing with the Spirit and with the understanding also. Yeah? So there's obviously both there. God is not pleased with jargon and discord. Right is always more pleasing to him than wrong. And the nearer the people of God can approach to correct harmonious singing, the more he is glorified, the church benefited, and unbelievers favorably affected. They also asked me to speak about worship, uh, music in, as a tool for evangelism. I actually didn't spend a lot of time on that because I realized there was a lot of stuff I wanted to get done here. Um, and I didn't want to kind of go through two subjects or two topics rushed. So I spent more time on this, but if you want to start with showing unbelievers what Christ, who Christ is and what he looks like, get our churches to start praising that Christ in, an, in a proper biblical way. And it says that. It says here that unbelievers will favorably be affected. Yeah? Because, I mean... It just is an inconsistency. Anyone who comes to a church who's not doesn't come from a Christian background, it would be strange to them to come to a church and see people not participating in a worship service to the God that you are trying to witness that person to. But the truth is, what are you going to do? You're going to make your own church? Everyone has their own individual church? No, I mean you're you're a church body, and I'm not talking about which style or whatever. I'm just saying, sing, sing in a way that is appropriate to the biblical truth that you're hearing. And through that, I mean, then you'll have unbelievers actually being, wow, these people actually worship the way those Justin Bieber fans you know, worship like. They're consistent, yeah? That's a big reason why it's hard for our people that come as unbelievers to stick around because they just see that inconsistency of our worship. This is from the church manual. It says, Place of music in worship. Music can, this is from Testimonies Volume 4. Music can be a great power for good, yet we do not make the most of this branch of worship. The singing is generally done from impulse or to meet special cases, and in other times, those who sing are left to blunder along, and the music loses its proper effect upon the minds of those present. Music should have beauty, pathos, and power. Let the voices be lifted in songs of praise and devotion. Call to your aid, if practicable, instrumental music. And let the glorious harmony ascend to God, an acceptable offering. It seems that at our churches at times, again, the song super seems to be just kind of tacked on at the beginning. If we've seen from the Bible that a spiritual response can be singing to a response to biblical truth, why don't we have more than just one closing song after a sermon? Maybe it's because we had like 50 million announcements and the, the person gets up to preach at like 11.45 and people are already checking their watches. Like, why don't we try scrapping all of those announcements, put it down in a piece of paper that you already have given them, tell them to read it after or give it to them after, and spend some time singing, praying to begin with, have some testimonies, then have a powerful sermon that's based in biblical truth, and then start singing as a response to the biblical truth that we just heard not just singing your last obligatory opening song that you stand for, then you pray, 
and then you hear the organ play as you're running off to go check your special key roast, yeah? Like, let's take time to worship. Singing is worship. Let's take time for that. Let's respond appropriately, yeah? So selecting music, appropriateness. A main thing is intentionality. Uh, something I said in my seminar last year on the worship service is that I believe that each one way to help with choosing music um, and making things intentional and focused is having a theme each Sabbath. A lot of our church services are kind of piecemeal, yeah? Like you have the special music is about whatever, it's, a, it's about the cross, and then you have um, the sermon is about uh, whatever, it's, it's, sorry? Sure, it's about faith. The, the scripture reading well, should go along with that. But you have the children's story that's about stewardship. You have the offering appeal that talks about, yeah, well, whatever, yeah, again, faith or something like that. And it just seems kind of jumbled, yeah? Like you can tell that there wasn't someone in charge to make sure that all of those things that happened in the worship service actually went together. And the songs are picked just at random. Um, there's no continuity there. If our worship service was built on a theme, then everything from the special music to the children's story to the sermon to the closing song or songs would fit together. And it could just drive home the point of the sermon even more, yeah? But the, the, the tough thing is that would require effort and practice and intentionality more than just the Friday before that Sabbath. We should change that mindset. We're going to be talking about here the need and the role of a, of a worship leader. And I think that's it. I mean, we have the, the preachers in charge of making sure that the sermon is going to be appropriate, Christ-centered, um, going to uh, you know, tell a story, have a proper introduction and ending, wrap it up all nicely. Well, who's in charge of making sure that the rest of the service does that? It shouldn't necessarily be the pastor's job, yeah? if he's the one preaching that Sabbath. I think it has a lot to do with us not understanding that the music and the other praise that goes on in the worship service is as important as the sermon. So when you choose music, here's something just to be aware of. Uh, the intent. When you have a music, whether it be a hymn or a praise song or a scripture song, whatever it is, uh, ask yourself, why was this written? Um, what was the author, the composer, trying to accomplish? Uh, was it for celebration? Was it for reflection? Um, was it to convey uh, contrition? Uh, even on, on certain songs, if you can, find out the, the kind of the background of, of the song itself, of how, what was the context and when it was written. Those of you who may have heard this before, but uh, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, was written by Horatio Spafford. Who knows the story of that? Who knows the story how it was? It is well with my soul was written. Okay, some yeah, some of you do. So it is well with my soul, which sounds like wow, it's awesome, everything is great. Well, Horatio Spafford wrote that song right after he found out that his wife and kids died in their their ship that basically sunk when he was going back from Europe or whatever, and he didn't get to go on that one. And he then, after he heard that they had that ship had sunk, they were in it and they drowned and died he then took a boat out to Europe or wherever they were coming from um, and stopped in the area where he figured that they had died 
and he wrote that song, It Is Well With My Soul. When I first heard that, I can't sing that song the same way anymore. I mean, especially now, you know, I have a wife and a kid myself. I just say, Lord, if, if they were to, you know, to die, to be taken, could I write a song as well with my soul? So again, take that time to, to, to research that, to figure that out. Even some of the more contemporary praise songs, you can find out this, this information on why these people wrote those songs. Um, appropriateness. Again, if you have a theme, you want to choose songs that are fitting with the theme. So if it's, you need a reflective song, then you choose a song that, that does that. If, if, it's a, if it's a joyful song, you're wanting to really um, uh, express happiness and gladness, then choose the right songs. Don't choose those funeral dirge-type hymns. You know which ones I'm talking about. That, uh, that I don't even know why they're still in the hymn book. Um, some of those may be appropriate for certain things, but if you're, if you're talking about... Uh, the, the, the joy of the resurrection as a theme, um, choose some happy songs. Yeah? Um, I'm not saying that sad songs are not good. Again, we need to have the full range of emotion because that's what we see in the Bible. But just make sure you choose the appropriate one and that will help by having a theme and being intentional and maybe speaking to the pastor, find out what he's going to be preaching about and build the whole service around that theme. Yeah? Um, and then communication. Just again... Um, wanting to make sure that all the expressions and the overall tone of the entire service uh, is appropriate for the songs that you're choosing. Instruments in worship. Okay. There are instruments in the Bible that they use for worship. There's a whole bunch of them. If you read Psalm 150, um, you can read in Exodus. There is a bunch. There were Stringed instruments, there were percussive instruments, uh, there were, sorry? Oh, of course, there were wind instruments, there were a whole bunch, and they were all part of the worship there in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and I think that they're appropriate for today as well. Uh, Ellen White says, here she says, in our camp meeting services, there should be singing and instrumental music. Musical instruments were used in religious services in ancient times. The worshipers praise God upon the harp and cymbal, and music should have its place in our services. It will add to the interest. So rather than going on and figuring out the debate about which instruments are good or bad or evil, or whatever, I just think that the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy are our guide in that, and they're both advocates for instruments, and we should play them accordingly. And furthermore, they will help to add, like I said, with the cello or the violin, to really help... Um, mature our emotions in making sure that our affections are appropriate to the biblical truth we're hearing, yeah? So I'll, I'll just, that's basically what I want to say about that. Instruments are awesome. Um, and we'll get into some practical stuff as far as being a worship leader and how instruments are used um, because you've got to make sure that people that play them are skilled. We'll get there. Okay. So a need and a role for a worship leader. Oh, man, I think I'm on doing pretty good for time here. Okay. Like we said, we, like, we, we critique sermons, yeah? We say, oh yeah, that the introduction was, was good, or the illustration was good. Yeah, great. Um, uh, it was a really good delivery, very appropriate, great use of um, scripture, great use of um, their own personal testimonies. Well, we need to do that for our music as well. We should be able to evaluate our music to say, hey, was, was that used appropriately? Was there a good use of scripture songs? And praise songs that 
that talked about you know, someone's personal um, experience and how God has moved in their lives. The reason, like I said, that doesn't happen all the time is because we don't have someone in charge of making sure that happens. We have here David in the Bible as an example. He was the music leader. He was skilled himself, and he was in charge of choosing other people. I'm going to get into the qualifications and, and some of the practical stuff here in a second, but I believe that there is a need for worship leaders in our churches to ensure that our music services are of the best quality that we can give to the Lord, because he deserves it. We need someone who is thinking more than just the day before. I mean, here's something radical. Why don't we plan for our worship services like two or three weeks in advance? That would be awesome, yeah? That would make sure that there's no fumbling up in front. Um, the transitions between the songs are proper. The slideshows aren't like the wrong ones. I, I just, it kills me to see like when the, the slides are incorrect. Um, again, I've done this myself, so I'm, I, I'm trying to learn myself when I have let out in song service. The way to ensure that that stuff happens is you practice, and you practice more than we can advance. You should be practicing for songs that you're going to be doing in, say, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, with your praise team. Because all those little things are just distractions that can really just totally knock the course of your singing, totally off track. And it, the, the, the sad thing is that it can be avoided. It can be avoided if we are taking the time to have someone in charge of making sure that these people that are in charge of that are on the ball, yeah? Our, our dear brothers and sisters that run the sound booth. At times, you know, you're trying to figure out which mic is supposed to be on or off, and there's a squeal. Like, ah, that stuff kills me, and it can be avoided as long... A way to avoid that is by having someone in charge to make sure that there's a sound check maybe the Thursday or Friday before, not just those few minutes before Sabbath school is starting in the main, in the main uh, sanctuary, yeah? So the, the role and the need of a worship leader is to, as David's an example, to choose the, the appropriate people to lead the worship service and to ensure the highest quality of a worship service. Here's a long quote. I'm going to read it to you. Another matter which should receive attention both at our camp meetings and elsewhere, is that of singing. A minister should not give out hymns to be sung until it has been first ascertained that they are familiar to those who sing. A proper person should be appointed to take charge of this exercise, and it should be his duty to see that such hymns are selected as can be sung with the Spirit and with the understanding also. Again, there's that balance of Spirit and truth. Singing is a part of the worship of God, but in the bungling manner in which it is often conducted, it is no credit to the truth and no honor to God. There should be system and order in this as well as every other part of the Lord's work. Organize a company of the best singers whose voices can lead the congregation and then let all who will unite with them. Those who sing should make an effort to sing in harmony. They should devote some time to practice that they may employ this talent to the glory of God. Yeah? So she's saying there should be a person in charge of... of doing this. I've been to several Sunday churches where their worship services are just awesome, spirit-filled, uh, spirit organized. They're just like, it's, you can just tell there was practice, there was intentionality. Why is that? 
It's because they take it seriously. They actually understand that singing is part of worship and an offering to God that should receive, that should deserve our attention and focus. And they have people that are worship leaders. Some are actually, or many, are paid music ministers. That's their full-time job. I'm not necessarily saying that we need to have it in our churches. I, won't, I wouldn't be against it. But if, but if we have people who were in charge of ensuring that the music service and the worship service were done correctly, maybe then we would take it more seriously, yeah? Qualifications of a worship leader. You should be, that person should be converted. Yeah? We're going to get to skill here in a second, but it's not just about who's the most skilled. Skill is definitely involved, but don't choose the person that's super skilled, yet they're rocking out in the clubs like the next day or that, that Saturday night, yeah? I mean, and now I'm not saying we can't really, you know, the hearts, although we can't judge people, but I mean, ask the person. <laughs> and hopefully they're honest enough to tell you whether or not they have allowed Christ to be their personal Savior or not, yeah? So full surrender to the Lord. Understand and practice continual worship. What we were talking about at the beginning, understanding that Worship is not just an on and off switch and that we should be worshiping at all times continually. They should understand that. Next is skilled. Okay. We're going to the Bible again. First Chronicles, chapter 15. First Chronicles, chapter 15, verse 22. This is David, um, part of his selection of the people who would lead out in the worship service. 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 22. It says here, Kenaniah, leader of the Levites, was instructed in charge of the music because he was skillful. Don't just choose the person who is most willing. There's a big difference, and I'm not... <laughs> Here's another practical point. Okay, if, if you only have someone who's willing and no, no one else can even do it, Ask your pastor or your church board to put some money towards music lessons for that person. <laughs> We're trying to make this as practical as possible. I mean, that's practical, yeah? If you're the only person you're willing, hey, praise God, but if you're not skillful, then get better. And one way to do that is if he wants to play the guitar, well, give him guitar lessons. They don't cost that much. And the church can figure out a way to, to raise that money for those piano lessons or guitar, guitar lessons because again, God deserves the best and we can improve, yeah? So it's skill. The Bible says in Psalm 33 that David would play and sing skillfully when he was doing it. Okay, so God didn't appoint David to do it just because he was willing. He chose David because he had those gifts and he was skilled um, and he loved the Lord, yeah? Um, what else we got here? Must see position as ministry. If the person just sees it as, okay, I'm just going to make a spreadsheet of who's going to be leading out on what day, who's going to be doing special music, and that's my only job. Sure, that can be a ministry, but it's so much more, yeah? The person should really take hold of it, have onus in it, and, and give everything they have to it. Again, our evangelical friends, a lot of their music ministers are paid. That's their full-time job to do that. And as a result, their music services are awesome. So we can 
learn some principles from that as far as uh, really empowering our um, members to take charge of the worship service and make sure that it's of the highest quality, yeah? What else we got? Work well with others. <laughs> Sounds like a given, doesn't it? Not necessarily. Make sure that the person that's going to be in charge likes people and that people like them. Now, I will say this, that at times you have to be someone who's going to call the shots. It's not the easiest thing to tell, to tell Brother Bill, listen, man, you just don't have the skill. Sorry, brother. But, um, but you can do that in a kind way. And you just got to be someone that, yeah, people want to actually work with, people want to approach, and uh, people that will do everything in a, in a Christ-like way, yeah? Committed and willing to sacrifice. You have to let the person know that whoever, or for yourself, if you're going to be the worship leader, if the ball drops and something is missed or whatever, you're going to have to be the one that steps in and, and, and take that. You're going to have to sacrifice. And again, if you see that as a ministry, then you'll do that, yeah? Confident. Not in yourself, but in the fact that God has called you into this position. If anyone ever asks you to be a worship leader, or if you're feeling called to be one, you have to be praying and asking the Lord if this is what he's calling you to. And if you feel that the Spirit is telling you that it is, then, then move forward in faith. Be confident that the Lord's going to give you all the things that you need. He's going to raise up people in your church to work with you to bring the, the best quality worship to your church. Yeah, So be confident. Practical responsibilities and considerations. Okay, here, I'm, now I'm just going to basically, for the last 15 minutes, just go through a bunch of different practical things. Um, not that we haven't already, but some things that to think about as a worship leader. If you go back to your church and do this, or if you want to assist, or if you see someone in your church that has a potential, you can maybe share this stuff with them. Uh, work with the pastor to explain worship to congregation. If this is new to you, this whole continual worship and understanding the role of music in worship, Talk to your pastor, maybe, and Lord willing, he's already, underst- already understand this, but if he doesn't, maybe share with, with him this, this biblical understanding of what worship is in music, and then maybe have him do a, uh, like a three or four week series on worship that, that can help educate the members, and at the same time, you can be implementing those different music elements in the worship service, yeah? I think that's a cool idea. Um, don't keep it local, like... Don't, I mean, sorry, don't keep it, don't keep music in a vacuum. It's not just something that's just tacked onto the worship service. It's integrated. Be working with your pastor on making sure that the worship service is complete in spirit and in truth, yeah? Uh, what else do we have here? Um, set goals. Write, write down, and maybe with your pastor, or write them down and present them to your, present them to your pastor, uh, things that you would like to see happen in your church. Maybe you want to see some more song service, some more songs being sung after the sermon. Maybe you want to uh, see a theme in each service. Uh, maybe you want to make sure that um, all the special musics uh, are in line with the sermon and if there's any appeal music, you have that person ready or someone ready. So set goals and run them by your pastor, see what... what what he thinks if he's on board, then, then run with it, yeah? Be prepared for Sabbath morning. 
Sounds like a given again. The only way to be prepared for Sabbath morning is to be practicing before Sabbath morning. Again, if you can plan your worship services two, three weeks out, that's, you're going to see a difference. You're going to see a change because it's not hard to see when someone has just planned a, the worship service late that Friday night or even, Lord forbid, that Sabbath morning. Again, as a, as a worship leader at times in my church, I've done that and I've repented and it's, you can tell. Always be on call. This was like the whole sacrifice thing. Um, if there was a, a special music that was needed to be done for the sermon, in case something else comes up or there's an appeal song, be ready with the song. If you can play the, the piano or the guitar yourself, have it ready. Have something ready in case the Spirit moves the, the, the pastor and he has an altar call and he, there's music that can enhance that and, again, bring out the emotions that are proper and biblically based. Be ready, yeah? What else do we have here? Motivation. You have a, if you have a praise team, your job as a worship leader is to help the people understand that you're going to be praising God, that you are the ones that are in charge of leading the congregation into corporate prayer to God, yeah? Motivate them. Meeting with the team. Meet with your, your, your worship team and pray for the Spirit to move. And then actually expect the Spirit to move. Your job is to, to be in charge of that. I've just been to many churches where there was no real worship leader. It was just the, the person who was in charge of setting that schedule and they just met with all the people in the worship service five minutes before going on, to the, going on stage and just saying, okay, you guys all ready? Okay, let's have a quick prayer and you're, you're, you're gone. No, there should, there should be more onus, more involvement, yeah? More intentionality. So that's what a worship leader can do. More practical suggestions. Special music doesn't have to be every Sabbath. If you're at a church where you're like just trying to have special music for the sake of it, and you know, Sister Jill, her daughter's like singing the same uh, special music for like the third time in like two months, it's better not to have a special music. You don't have to have a special music every single time. Transition between songs. I know it's very common for us to lead out in a song and then at the end of the song you say, and our next song will be so-and-so. You don't have to do that. What you can do is actually just go into the next song and they'll find out what song it is when they start singing it. Um, and I th- Yeah, or something, uh, yeah, something that can enhance it as far as explaining the background, yeah. But, you don't, but don't feel obliged to stop in between just to introduce it or tie in some sort of spiritual thing that isn't necessary. Um, if you want to build a background and talk about what the composer was trying to say or where it's been, that's great. Maybe say that for the first song and then segue right into the second song. When I lead out in song service, if I'm leading out on the guitar, I'll choose two or three songs that are in the same key so that you can just seamlessly go from the first song to the third song. And then if you want to take a break after that one, that's fine. You can just have a testimony. And then the next, day, two or three songs, have that in the same key as well so that you can just seamlessly, seamlessly go to, through those three songs. Yeah? You just don't want to break up the spirit if the spirit's moving. Um, again, if you're training your members to understand that um, you should have proper affections and emotions through 
biblical understanding, let the Spirit move. Sometimes just having instrumental music playing in between the song where people can just reflect that they can be, as Ellen White just um, basically in rapture, just, just have the rapturous music be able to just sink into their hearts and their minds to really feel the Spirit moving, yeah? So that's just some, again, some practical things. You don't have to always stop between songs. Um, what else do we have here? Oh, a great, if you want to have scripture reading, which again, I don't think scripture reading is really, as far as having all the extra announcements and preamble stuff, um, if, the, if the pastor is going to be preaching on that text, you don't have to have someone come up and read that text right before he comes up there. I mean, he's going to read it, so um, he can read it. Um, but if you want to maybe do a full passage of what the, the pastor is going to say, I, I've seen this done, I've been part of services that do this, have maybe someone playing lightly on the piano or having just plucking with guitar and have that person read like a full um, chapter even. That, that can, adhering scripture to music that's fitting with what's being read is, is awesome. It's just, yeah, a, really a way to bring um, the hearts and minds to the Lord. Um, what else? Oh, here's something. Like I said with the slides, run through them all, practice all of them, actually go through all, all, all of the slides to make sure that there are no missing slides, make sure that all the lyrics on the slides are correct with what the music people are singing, yeah? Because, again, I've been part of singing the wrong songs, the wrong lyrics, and it's not good. Um few more here, and then we'll wrap up. Okay. Starting your worship service with a time of silence. A lot of the time, our, our song services are kind of that transition to, okay, the sermon's going to be starting soon, I better get to my seat. Rather than doing that, again, I don't think you even need to have any announcements, but if you need to have some, sure, have some, whatever, get that out of the way, and then take a moment of three to five minutes of just silence. Have people, in, but just tell people, hey, we're going to take our time now to really um, not invite the Spirit, if the Spirit's already been moving in our hearts for the whole week, but to, to really just allow the worship service to mean something. Take three or five minutes to be silent, have people pray, have people um, just confess their sins to the Lord so that there can be nothing between them during the service that's about to proceed, yeah? It would dra- if, you, if you did that, it would drastically change. I've done that in worship service, and it drastically changed the way that the service went because typically, like I said, people are just kind of coming in. It's just like flip-flop kind of time that there's announcements and children's story, blah, blah, blah. But if you start this way, it can really set the tone. And I actually have, uh, again, a long thing, but I want to read this to you. When the worshipers enter the place of meeting, they should do so with decorum, passing quietly to their seats. Common talking... Whispering and laughing should not be permitted in the house of worship, either before or after the service. Ardent, active piety should characterize the worshipers. If some have to wait a few minutes before the meeting begins, let them maintain a true spirit of devotion by silent meditation, keeping the heart uplifted to God in prayer that the service may be of special benefit to their own hearts and lead to the conviction and conversion of other souls. 
they should remember that heavenly messengers are in the house. We all lose much sweet communion with God by our restlessness, by not encouraging moments of reflection and prayer. This spiritual condition needs to be often reviewed and the mind and heart drawn toward the Son of Righteousness. If when the people come into the house of worship, they have genuine reverence for the Lord and bear in mind that they are in the presence, there will be a sweet eloquence and silence. The whispering and laughing and talking, which might be without sin, in a common business place, should find no sanction in the house where God is worshipped. The mind should be prepared to hear the word of God, that it may have due weight and suitably impress the heart. You notice that? She has the spirit and truth there again, right? The mind should be prepared, the mind should be prepared to the word of God, and it may have due weight and, and suitably impress the heart. So Ellen White understood this. She understood that true worship has spirit and truth. And one way to build an environment for that or conducive to that is to just have some silence at the beginning of the worship service. So what did we talk about? We just mentioned what worship is. It's continual worship, yeah? We don't turn it on and off. Worship is defined as a spiritual response to biblical truth about God. God is continually revealing himself to us, so therefore we should be continually responding to him. One of the primary responses that we can do to hearing biblical truth is music, is singing. That is worship. It's as important as speaking and prayer in a worship service. The way to ensure that that happens in a worship service is to have someone that's in charge of that. We have the pastor or the preacher in charge of the sermon, the preaching of the Word of God. We should have someone in charge of the singing and praising to God as a response to that biblical truth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we learn something here today. Lord, we want to be true worshipers of you. Lord, forgive us if in the past we have not done that. We have not understood biblically what true worship is. Lord, I pray that your spirit will move in our hearts and our minds to make us complete, continuous worshipers to you. Lord, if some of us are being called to be a worship leader in our church, I pray that you give us the confidence to move forward in that as we work with our pastor to ensure that the worship services are of the highest quality to you. I pray that you be with those individuals in this room now. Lord, we thank you for your love, your mercy. We want to respond to that truth appropriately, biblically, and spirit-filled. So please, Lord, through faith, in you, by your mercy, help us to do that. Help us to take these practical guidelines, these biblical truths, back to our home churches so that we may be prepared for your return, that we may be prepared for your kingdom, and that others may see you through our worship to you. In your name I pray, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant 
Bible-based and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.